CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. It's Political Rewind time. I'm Bill Nygut. We're glad you're with us for today's show. And uh, this is it. The 2018 election is finally, as of uh, last night, over and done with. So let's start talking about 2020. What do you say? We will sooner than you probably imagine. We're not going to do that today. We do want to talk about what happened in the runoffs last night. Joining us, Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the hardest working man in the news business these days. Hi. Hi, I'm, I'm glad it's uh, the last one is over and, yeah. and, and no more. That wasn't an all-nighter last night, but we were up till well past midnight. Yeah, we would expect nothing less from you, Bluestein, than being up working on a story till after midnight. Julianne Thompson, Republican strategist, um, longtime activist in Republican Party politics and working with the state Republican Party. Glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Sitting to your right or left is uh, Buddy Darden, former Democratic congressman out of Cobb County. Hi, buddy. Good to be here. Woke up in the middle of the night and uh, checked the returns, and uh, unfortunately, no big surprises. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a second. And um, from NPR Studios in Washington, Kyle Hayes. He is the founder, producer. Uh, he's all things Peach Pod, uh, the podcast that uh, talks about Georgia news. And even though Kyle, you uh, live and work in Washington now. You are actively pursuing and following news in Georgia politics. How are you? I'm great. It's good to be back. Uh, Real quick, you have a new podcast you're about to release. Tell everybody what it is. We do. Uh, You'll hear it by the end of this week. We're going to talk about the future for Democrats now that they've fallen short in statewide races yet again. Okay. And you expect that'll be out, what, by the end of the week? By the end of the week. Okay. Are you connected with Peach Pack in any way? <laughs> I am not. Okay. No, Peach Pod. You know what a podcast is, don't oh, you, Oh, I know buddy? what a podcast is. I mean, I know you're is, old, but, but thought, you know what a podcast is. I, I thought is. he might be connected with a well-known political action committee down here, Peach Pack. <laughs> I'll glad. send you a subscribe link, buddy. There Please. you go. I'm, I'm glad we got that cleared up. Um, all right, let's start with the um, runoff uh, results. You know, Greg, uh, Democrats came into the 2018 cycle with high hopes. They had Stacey Abrams pushing hard to be elected governor. They had some good candidates in constitutional offices. And we come out of last night um, with Brad Raffensperger winning over John Barrow, the Republican winning over John Barrow by what, about 50,000 votes, I think? By about four percentage points. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. There's a couple ways to look at it, right? I mean, you could look at it one way, saying Democrats far outperformed their previous runoff um, election back in 2008 when Jim Martin got about 43% of the vote. Now you've got um, John Barrow with 48% of the vote. and then Running across, in the same office, Jim Martin. The, yeah. Okay. Well, he's running for Senate. But, first, first, oh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. But that That's was the right. last fall runoff off election vote back in 2008. Um, and in general, J- Democrats, uh, you know, did much better than their than than previous candidates did in 2014 and, and even in 2016. Um, but, you know, the flip side to that coin is that uh, the, the suburban sweep that, that, that propelled Democrats to the near miss for Stacey Abrams, um, you know, kind of evaporated. Um, you saw Gwinnett barely stay in the Democratic fold and Cobb County flip back to the Republicans. So, well, not I, totally. Wait, 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 wait. Not totally. Let me, let me interrupt because we do want to talk about that, everybody, uh, in just a minute. But uh, Robert Jimison and Tom Faust have been working to get Brad Raffensperger, the winner of that Secretary of State's race, on the phone. And he is with us now. So let's hold off on what happened in the election, if we can, for just a few minutes. And welcome the uh, Secretary of State-elect, Brad Raffensperger. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. So um, I'm going to give everybody a chance to ask a question uh, while, while we have you for just the next couple of minutes. But let me, let me start, if I may. Um, you certainly are aware that, um, that the Georgia um, mechanisms and processes by how we run elections here have generated enormous controversy, not just in the state of Georgia, but as you know, the national media has raised a lot of questions about our systems. And 
for all of those voters out there, particularly if they were Stacey Abrams supporters and now we're following the lawsuit that she uh, uh, launched, there are some questions about how they feel, uh, uh, the confidence they have in Georgia elections. Do you acknowledge that there is, at, at the very least, some repair work to be done in terms of the image of the integrity of Georgia elections? Uh, I would say that uh, we had a robust election. We had lots of people showed up. And I think that, by and large, the election went very smoothly. And I feel that we did a good job. I think that a lot of frustration that some people have is that their side didn't win. Uh, When we look at how many precincts we did have and uh, how many issues we had, like with uh, you know, lake uh, openings in Gwinnett County, so we had to extend the voting hours in a few locations. Uh, just like yesterday, we had uh, one area where a school was shut down because of the security issues, so they, the doors were locked for a little bit, so people couldn't vote in uh, Fulton County, in one of the uh, areas, but it got reopened. There's another issue where uh, one of the poll workers just was late to arrive, and so it didn't start right at 7. But if you look at the overall, by and large, you know, yes, there were some issues, but it was not systemic. It was not system-wide. And so whatever, whatever I can do as Secretary of State to prepare us for the next election in 2020, I'll be doing that. I'll be looking at uh, doing a review of what went well, where we had some uh, stresses in the system, and where we can improve you know, the election process for everyone. I understand that everyone's franchise to vote is very priceless, and we don't want to do anything to... Uh, cause consternation and, and place burdens on anyone. We want it to run smoothly. Uh, Greg, uh, you want to jump in? Yeah, I just had a follow-up to that. Um, we, we already know there's going to be a debate next year over replacing those voting machines with some sort of paper verification system. But I, I, I asked Brian Kemp this, and he said he was open um, to this debate as well. But w- there's, there, this could expand to some fixing some of the issues that both parties um, say sort of marred uh, the the general, which are, <clears throat> you know, standards for counting provisionals and absentee new protocols for absentee ballots. What role do you think you would play in that debate? Well, I think that uh, we're going to review all of that. Uh, well, that you just actually raised three issues there: provisionals, absentees, and then new machines. Mm-hmm. We we do we need new machines. They're 16 years old. Safe committee. Uh, commission is meeting next Wednesday in Macon. I intend to be there, and that I believe will be their final meeting. Out of that, I trust will come recommendations of what their findings were, and I'm glad that that was a bipartisan commission. I'm glad that it reached out to county election supervisors, county election officials, and also voting machine technology experts, people that have really been digging in on the pluses and minuses of each different technology, things to look out for to make sure you have a cybersecure system. I think Julianne yeah. Thompson would love to get a word in with you, uh, Mr. Raffensperger. Sure. Hi, Hi, Brad. I wanted to ask you, um, given what happened in Florida, the situation between uh, Brenda Snipes and uh, Governor Scott and the way that she was asked to step down, and looking at that from a Georgia perspective, the fact that some election supervisors were late, some poll managers were late, which is which should really be completely inexcusable. How will the Secretary of State's office play a role in choosing um, or repla- choosing to replace some election supervisors and overseeing uh, the proper selection of poll managers for the upcoming election in 2020? Well, so much of that is related to the counties. If you look at uh, the counties, I believe that by and large they, they did uh, – they did a good job. I think that the, that does get back to the role that the Secretary of State's office can play with really training, retraining, communication, uh, and stressing the important things. Particularly with these new machines, we need to make sure that as we secure the funding for the new machines, we actually uh, secure funding for training so we can come alongside the counties. Because you have counties with less than 10,000 people, 100,000, and the large, you know, supersized ones with a million folks. And we need to make sure that we can get that training message down so we have competency at all level there. And people are very skilled in the machines and why they're different, how they're different, so they uh, can operate seamlessly on Election Day. Buddy Darden? Brad, this is Buddy Darden. First of all, I want to say congratulations on your election. I know it's been a long year for you, and uh, I know you're anxious to get to work. 
Uh, I wanted to ask you one question is how do you account for the fall off uh, from the number of percentage of people voting for governor as opposed to lieutenant governor, knowing that it went right back up, and also considering the fact that of the 630,000 people who uh, voted uh, with paper ballots by absentee and otherwise, that the percentage stayed the same, but the uh, numerical fall off was only on the mechanical part of the voting. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think I would probably, my guess is that uh, I believe that really what happened there is, that first of all, we had libertarians for the governor, we also had them for secretary of state. Uh, and so I think that you had those, that group of energized voters that were going to make sure they uh, voted, and they may not have felt that they had a dog in the hunt for the lieutenant governor. They were really there coming as true libertarians, and so they were looking at those two races. But you do have a uh, drop off at any time when it happens. And so they're, um, it's just one of those things that happened. I don't believe that was anything that due to the machine. I think it's just people didn't vote. Uh, you see that all the time. We're, You'll see people will vote for governor, and then all of a sudden they don't follow the ballot all the way down. We're, we're uh, going to talk about that in more depth a little later in the show, uh, Mr. Effensberger. But before we, I know we've got to let you go in a second, but, but Kyle uh, Hayes, I wanted to uh, offer you an opportunity to ask a quick question if you have one. Yeah, Secretary-elect, what's your view of the amount of funding that local, that counties have to administer elections locally? Um, I know one of the issues with getting absentee ballots out for the runoff was that some counties couldn't print locally. Um, and do you think that the state should step in and provide more funding so that there's more equitable funding between all local jurisdictions? I think that uh, making sure our elections are run smoothly and so that there's never uh, issues. If that requires additional funding, I would be uh, wanting to receive that information, and I would like to then present that uh, to the General Assembly and to uh, Governor-elect Kemp. I think Governor-elect Kemp was, is in the unique position that he's held this office. He also now is the governor. I do know that as it relates to uh, just for licensing and corporations, that's about 80 to $85 million a year that the Secretary of State's office takes in. Uh, and yet the budget for the office is 30 to 35 million. And so perhaps if we had uh, an allocation of additional financial resources, we could come alongside the counties to help support them better. Because at the end of the day, those counties are all represented by a state representative, all you know, represented by a state senator. And they want their elections for their area to run smooth because when they don't, they're getting a call. And all so right. That gets, back, that gets back to customer service. And so... I think that's very important, and that's certainly something I'd like to take a look at. All right. I um, appreciate it, uh, Mr. Effensberger. <clears throat> I'm going to jump in because I know uh, we need to. We promised you we would uh, talk to you just for a few minutes. Congratulations on your victory. We're, of course, on this show going to be watching closely to see what does happen with the Safe Commission, the group, the bipartisan group that's been empowered to research what kind of new voting systems we should turn to. You've told us you'll be involved in that, and we'll, uh, I, I hope, talk to you again in the future about your plans uh, once you're sworn in as Secretary Say, Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Bill. Okay. Um, so let's go back to this for uh, Buddy, you asked a question that we're going to get into a little bit uh, later in the show, and it's an interesting one. Uh, Jim Galloway has a column in the, in the uh, Dead Tree edition of the paper today talking about the fact that, as you point out, there was a significant drop-off from the governor's race to the lieutenant governor's race, and then the numbers went back up again in lower ballot races. And we'll talk about that a little more. I want to park that for just the next few minutes. But, um, Kyle, let me start with you on this. I know Raffensperger um, wants to be cautious about he, how he talks about the election processes and machinery, but... There is, it strikes me there's very little question that the enormous amount of publicity on those things during this cycle has raised questions in voters' minds about whether they can feel confident that elections, whether they go to Democrats or Republicans, are being counted accurately. How do you imagine? I, mean, I was a little, I was sorry he didn't want to address that a little bit more, Kyle. Yeah, I think this is going to be a challenge for him in the beginning of his tenure as Secretary of State. Um, and I think it would be to his own benefit to be very out front and uh, taking this problem seriously and looking for ways 
to find solutions, to present options to the legislature for solutions, uh, because I don't think that these questions are just going to go away before 2020, and we've got a Senate contest, we'll have statewide elections again in four years. Um, he's kind of been absent on the campaign trail or a little bit quieter than other candidates. And so I think he may want to change his tune and be a little more out front on this going forward. Well, really, he couldn't say anything until he was elected. And I, this is, I think, probably his first uh, time to discuss the situation. I'm sure once he has a chance to get, get his uh, sea legs, uh, then he'll be in a position to do something. And hopefully, since he has been a member of the legislature, he can go to the legislature and become aggressive in seeking the funding that's necessary because I think we all know, in all deference to the uh, Secretary of State-elect, there were some serious problems last time, and Georgia, frankly, got a a black eye. And it's not his fault. He was was not the Secretary of State. He was not involved in the election process at the time. But we all— know that that's some problems we need to fix. Look, he doesn't want to get out ahead ahead of uh, Governor-elect Kemp on this one because this Kemp is in a very unique position. Five of the last six secretaries of state ran for governor. He's the only one to win. So voting rights is sort of in his in his wheelhouse. So so you could hear from that interview. Raffensperger did not want to um, say too much that would look like he's getting ahead of of Kemp there. And Kemp is in, as we've talked about before, a really unique role here um, to go beyond those voting machines and to make some other changes. Yes, Julianne. So let me throw this out to you. Um, obviously, the, the dynamic um, about alleged voter suppression played out purely along partisan lines throughout the 2018 cycle. Uh, it was Democrats accusing Republicans, Brian Kemp and others of suppressing votes um, and the like. But regardless of party, right now, there is concern among, I think, voters that we have honest and accurate elections. Do you think that Republicans, as we're all uh, asking, need to look at how they can restore the public's faith? Well, I think that all of our legislators and elected officials need to look at how they can restore the public's faith. Uh, as, As we talked about before the show started, you can't call every mistake and every level of incompetence that happens during an election on a local level, voter suppression. Um, So I think that the first thing that we need to do is stop accusing each other of things and try to work together. And I think that that is exactly the attitude that Brad Raffensperger has. And I think he's using wisdom going forward in the way he's approaching the issue. You're not going to believe this, but I generally agree with Julianne (laughs) here and that I don't think the voter suppression maybe was as totally, as totally bad as as it was laid forth by some. But I think to ignore it and act like that uh, there's no problem here in Georgia uh, is not correct either. So I think it's time now. This election is over, and we need to move forward and start trying to correct those problems that were pretty evident we had last time, whether it amounts to suppression or not. Well, before we close out the conversation, though, Greg, the one last piece of this that we should mention at least briefly is that we do have now a major federal lawsuit filed by the supporters of Stacey Abrams uh, calling into question vast swaths of how Georgia um, registers and elects leaders. And they're asking for information that may give us a better picture of what really is going on. As Julianne suggests, not everything that seems to be voter suppression is, but this lawsuit has the potential to give us an enormous amount of information. Yeah, I mean, look, if lawmakers um, don't address this issue next year, you might see it addressed in the courts, and it depends on which judge they poll. But it, this this lawsuit attempts to overhaul the state's elections at a very fundamental level um, after thousands of voters reported issues like a canceled registration and ballots and long lines and those issues. And so it names 17, 18 different issues. Um, it might not ta- it, The judge might not tackle all those issues, but you could really see Brad Raffensperger spending as much time in court, or at least his lawyers, uh, as under the gold dome because um, the, he, he is now in the middle of this lawsuit. Yeah. All right, let, let's do, Buddy, you want to make I'm one last comment on this? I'm going to go out on a limb here a little bit. I'll go out on a limb a little bit and, and predict that what the court will do is not necessarily make changes in the code itself, but it will remand it back to the legislature. 
legislature and say, these are certain minimum standards you got to apply and uh, put the legislature in a situation of having to conform right. to the court order. We'll watch that play out. Uh, one other uh, note um, in terms of the runoffs, we also saw uh, incumbent Republican Chuck Eaton win his race uh, for PSC against Lindy Miller, the Democrat Julianne. Republicans today can celebrate the fact that since 2002 and through 2018, every constitutional office is owned, continues to be owned by a Republican. Well, that's right. And and we're thankful for that. But I don't think that we can, you know, rest on our laurels where that is concerned for 2020 or any other election. Um, I think that Democrats did make a lot of gains in the metro area when it came to state house and state Senate races. And I think that Republicans need to work very hard in planning uh, for 2020. And just to go back to to the previous comments, I just wanted to add when it comes to that the lawsuit that we were talking about and the alleged voter suppression, I think that it would behoove Republicans to take the lead on this and be proactive uh, before 2020 gets here. I They need to be uh, leading on messaging where this is concerned. So I hope that they get out in front on that. With respect to Chuck Eaton, I want to make uh, one observation. I'm sure Greg's already picked up on this, but there were two counties that Brian Kemp carried with majority African-American populations that this time came back and John Barrow carried them. But Chuck Eaton lost those two counties, uh, won those two counties because of the strength of the support of uh, Plant Vogel down there. They were Washington County and Burke County. Burke County, where, of course, Plant Vogel is located, and Washington County being an adjacent county in that area down there. And Barrow carried those, too, and they were also in his old congressional district, too. Right. So. By the way, Lindy Miller, uh, just to make a small point here, actually carried Cobb County, even though <laughs> even though The Barrow further bluing of Cobb in many ways. All right, you know, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. We've got to get to a break, but uh, you all started to have the conversation about what what the blue wave that didn't quite reach shore in this runoff election, although it obviously worked well for Lindy Miller and Cobb. Let's get a break out of the way, and we'll come back and discuss that and a lot more on Political Rewind. You've counted on GPB throughout 2018 to bring you insights into important issues and events, and you'll continue to rely on GPB in the new year. Your support makes all the programs that matter to you possible. As you support the organizations that are important to you during this season of giving, please include GPB. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. From all of us at GPB, thanks and happy holidays. Greg Bluestein, you didn't waste any time filing a story uh, overnight or early this morning asking what happened to the blue wave in metro Atlanta in regard to the runoff elections. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, uh, the, the counties that Democrats won for the first time in 2016 and, and really consolidated their gains in November um, didn't show up as big in support of, uh, of Democrats uh, last night. Um, Gwinnett County, for instance, which was 57 percent, Stacey Abrams just last month, uh, was about 50 point something for 50 point barely barely over the majority vote um, for, um, for for Barrow and in Cobb County it's very very close but he just reminded us that Lindy Miller actually won Cobb, Cobb County but Barrow actually lost it by a few hundred votes um, either way those were not the margins that the that, that Democrats needed in order to win these seats because of the Republican rural strength because Brad Raffensperger even outdid um, Brian Kemp in some of the, in terms of percentage in some of these rural counties, he needed big, big support from the 12th district that he used to represent and also from Metro Atlanta. Kyle, you're going to do a pod, or you've already got a podcast that's going to be released soon. I would love to hear a podcast that asks the question that I'll ask you first and then the rest of the panel. What is it about Republican turnout and runoffs that Democrats cannot seem to replicate here? It, it just seems more persistent. I think uh, Republican runoff voters are probably just paying more attention, more engaged. But I think if you're Democrats, you've got to be disappointed because voting rights is a central issue in the Democratic Party right now. And that was not of enough of a motivator to get voters out and put either of these statewide races over the top in runoffs. Um, and this is going to be, I think, the big lingering question for Democrats going forward is, yes, they brought the margins really close, and this is a much more competitive state, but can they get over the top and get wins in statewide races? 
Well, runoffs are not about swing voters. Runoffs are about mobilizing your base to turn out again. And I think that by and large in the state of Georgia, Republicans have done a better job at doing that. And I think that in this particular race, uh, the Republican base knew the importance of the Secretary of State's race. And so they turned out and mobilized in large numbers across the state. And also from uh, from a Democratic perspective, there was not a Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket to mobilize and motivate the voters, uh, the base of the Democratic Party. So I think it was twofold. The difference is, of course, uh, in a place like Cobb and Gwinnett, is that in Gwinnett, you had you in your low 20s at turnout, and it was far more than that uh, during the, the general election. And in Cobb, uh, we only had a 25 percent turnout. And I voted uh, absent, uh, absentee, or at least in advance this time, and with that, I didn't see anything but a bunch of us old white folks in line. So that's that's the difference right there. I want to jump off what Julianne said. Um, we saw Stacey Abrams send some tweets and some fundraising, and she had a press call uh, on Saturday about about John Barrow. But do you think she did enough to, to sort of energize supporters? Um, she didn't have a per- she didn't do anything personally. She didn't have a rally or anything for him. Do you, do you think do you think she would have helped? That's a very difficult question. I think uh, she made the effort. She was on record. Uh, to what extent she should have done more, I really am not in a position to say because in the end, the responsibility is on the voter to get out. And uh, the voters did not get out. And so the Democrats have nobody to blame but themselves that they, did, they didn't get their people back out. All right. Well, we're going to have plenty of time to uh, look at all of this uh, as we move forward, because 2020 is just around the corner here on Political Rewind. <laughs> Greg Bluestein is giving the thumbs up essentially to that because uh, we all like uh, being able to talk about elections. Speaking of elections, Greg, if you want proof that every single vote counts. The next time you say to yourself, oh, yeah, it's raining outside. I, I'm just not going to get to my polling place. I'm not going to cast a ballot. Just look at Dan Gassaway and Chris Irwin, who are in a re-election up there in uh, the North Georgia mountains, uh, essentially, uh, where right now Irwin is three votes ahead of Gassaway. You talk about a nail-biter where it all comes down to absentee ballots. This really does all come down to the, I think there's something like 60 or 50-something absentee ballots. Those will be mat- watched meticulously because they, they will literally decide this election. We this should- is for an important office, too. This is, this is not uh, State House the county state there. This is this is for a state representative yep. on a seat that's been empty. Yep. So. Let's, let's remind yeah. people that what happened here is that Irwin won the uh, the race essential initially, and then the Gasaway folks looked at the map, realized there were people who were sent to the wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they voted in the in the wrong district. Yeah, essentially. they voted for the neighboring and, house district, and so they ended up Julian with a revote that uh, again we're still waiting for a decision on. It's really exciting. And I mean, it's a three point or a three vote difference, three votes. So like you said, anyone that doesn't think that their vote doesn't count, they need to look at this race. Absolutely. Uh, I want to skip ahead to something, Greg, that you reported uh, uh, a little while ago, actually. You we've been we've been wondering about how Brian Kemp was going to do working with um, any number of Democrats, but most specifically with the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms. There are people who uh, remember that um, Kasim Reed and Nathan Deal did a terrific job working together for the good of the state and the city of Atlanta. So the question was twofold, really. Is Brian Kemp going to see that it's his job now to move a little back toward the center, to not uh, govern as he ran, which was as a conservative, real conservative? And two, would he be able to in some way recreate the relationship that Kasim and Governor Deal had? And what happened this morning? Well, and remember, this is a very hard relationship to re- recreate uh, because they had a very – Reed and Deal had a very special friendship that, that weathered a lot of political storms and real storms like the 2014 ice lock whatever you want to recall, recall that <laughs> as. Um, and so th- there's there's some work to do. And, and, and on the campaign trail, um, Brian Kemp kind of treated Keisha Bottoms in, in a way as a, as a political friend. Foil. He uh, when when she decided to end a federal contract for um, for ICE an ICE federal contract um, 
he he lashed out, lashed out about the corruption, threatened uh, to pack a state takeover of the airport, and she fought right back, um, mocking his ad, his famous ad with the gun and the teenager. Um, well, it looks like they're they're trying to you know d- diffuse that that toxic relationship and start anew. Um, and you point out something very important: who went to whom? Yeah, uh, Brian Kemp went to Mayor Bottoms. He he made the roughly we've 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 calculated this in the political fact <laughs> three hundred step walk from his office down to City Hall um, to 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 go to her you know to her neck of the woods to her backyard to, as a sign of respect for someone who's perhaps the state's top elected Democratic official. Kyle, for people who come through this election, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, who are really really tired of the partisanship. Uh, and and the the acrimony between Republicans and Democrats, it seems like every little morsel like this uh, it is something we seize upon to say, gee, maybe there is a way we can all start working together. Yes. It is. I think that's why everyone has looked so fondly on the letter that President George H.W. Bush left for President Clinton after Clinton beat Bush in 1992. I think the question is how long this lingers after elections have ended and and people start governing. One of the issues I think is probably going to help define the relationship between Kemp and Lance Bottoms is the issue around RIFRA. Uh, Business groups that are focused on economic development in the Atlanta area have been opposed to uh, these Religious Freedom Restoration Act proposals, uh, but Kemp has pledged that he would sign a copy of the federal RIFRA down at the state level, Uh, but we'll see if that issue uh, drives a wedge between Atlanta and the state government. I respectfully have some advice for uh, our governor-elect as he begins his term of office, and that is he needs to utilize Mrs. Kemp whenever possible. She's a star, and she has a real ability to relate to people and to get along with people, and she comes from a very strong Democratic background. Her father was Bob Argo, who was uh, an outstanding legislator for a number of years from the Athens area. And I think she can be a big help to him as he makes this change from campaigning to governing. It's a lot harder than it might seem. Julianne? Well, I was I, I couldn't agree more. I think that she's a definite asset to him. You know, she can drive a forklift just in case any of you didn't see that. <laughs> but she's a very real person and and she uh, she really draws people in and and you're right. She she's an excellent excellent um, asset right, so to him. Ju- but I wanted to say that I think that the fact that uh, Governor elect Kemp went to Mayor Lance Bottoms just shows what kind of a person that he is, what kind of a humble public servant leader that he wants to portray himself as. We're all in battle mode during elections on both sides of the aisle. We all get into that frame of mind. But now that that is over, he understands the importance of leadership and and reaching out uh, to former political foes. And I think that that is a good thing for the state of Georgia. Don't you think he ought to reach out to State Senator Nakima Williams as well? Well, I'm giving him time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, by the way, right. on that relationship, it is it is important for the city, but also for the entire state. If you think about what what Reed and Deal did, yes, it was the one point I think six billion dollar Mercedes Benz Stadium, but it was also um, getting more funding for the port. For the deepening. port, right? It was redoing the, the Gulch in, in Atlanta, which will have tremendous impact throughout the, the entire metro region. Um, and and there's there, and, and it's also just being an advocate. I mean, Deal used used Reed as a sort of a conduit to the Democratic White House when Obama was in office, just like Reed used Deal as a as a sort of a, 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 an entryway into a Republican-controlled going Well, dome. one of the things is going to be—well, go ahead, Julianne. Oh, it I looks just, like you want to Well, jump in. I just wanted to say that I don't believe that he's going to become less conservative. I don't think that that has anything to do with the fact that he wants to work across party lines and work with other people. You can find consensus and ways to work together without compromising your core values. All right, but here's the question I was about to ask. Kyle, let me uh, bring you in on this. Um, if we want to see a sign of, of real uh, working together, I mean, they're going to disagree on certain items. Obviously, Julianne makes that clear. But one of the items that is bubbling up is who should control Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. We know there's a move continuing in the, in the legislature to take uh, control away from the city of Atlanta. 
uh, at some point, Governor-elect Kemp's going to have to get involved in that. And the question is what he'll do. Yeah, I think this will be a good measure of how much he can smooth out disagreements among people on his right and uh, people governing in the city of Atlanta that are likely to be to his left and how much that conversation focuses on the merits of the issue versus, uh, you know, personal attacks on the management of the airport or the, or the contracts or any of the other stuff that went on. I think it's going to be a big test of his leadership, how he can keep that issue sort of between the lines and, and in a steady motion forward, you know, either either way, you know, either way it goes. All right. In the meantime, we'll watch how this unfolds. Um, let's move on. Let's, Buddy, I want to try to there, – there's a lot of figures involved in this story about the lieutenant governor's race, so I'll I try to keep it very uh, straightforward. In the race for governor, uh, there were 3.9 million people who voted. In the lieutenant governor's race, there were 159,000 fewer votes. And then in the next race down, Secretary of State's race, 103,000 of those voters who didn't vote in the lieutenant governor's race came back. Sarah Riggs Amico talked to Galloway about this. She does not think that they, she's not suggesting they should have a re-election. She does not deny the legitimacy of, of the election results. But she does wonder what the heck happened. And as you pointed out, the anomaly is only in terms of the actual machine votes on election day. It is not consistent in the advance voting and in the provisional voting. And it raises questions that relate to the first thing we talked about. Is there a problem with the, some of the machines? Did, how did some votes get lost? And this is one of those issues around voter, about election integrity that uh, Sarah Riggs Amico says they better get to the bottom of. We lawyers have a saying uh, when something uh, is apparent that it's not right, uh, that that is race ipsa loquitur, and that is a thing speaks for itself. Other folks say there's something uh, rotten in Denmark, but we've, but something is wrong somewhere. I'm not sure, of course, where it's mechanical, but the fact that 630,000 people who voted in the lieutenant governor's race uh, did not have that fall off when they use paper ballots. That is what is slightly scary about this whole situation. And again, Sarah Riggs Amico is not going to be lieutenant governor. And I'm not saying that, that uh, the election should be over again or anything like that. But what I'm saying is that is an anomaly that, and with all due respect for the uh, secretary of state elect, I don't think is explained by the fact that there was no libertarian candidate. Greg, the other uh, interesting factor here that leads people to be curious about this is that the fall off in votes appears to have been strongest in Democratic counties like DeKalb, Fulton and Clayton. There were also, though, I, I talked to um, I talked to uh, some people with the uh, with him, with the Duncan campaign who also said some of the fall off was was pronounced in Atkinson County, oh, in Republican Pierce County, in some, in some Republican right. counties too. But it's just less of a fall off because there's less voters. But one of the things that um, re- Republicans also point out is that there could have been some voter confusion in general with Lieutenant Governor and Governor thinking that the candidates ran on a ticket. And that a vote for Brian Kemp or Stacey Abrams was also a vote for Sarah Miko. Yeah. Here, here's the issue, I think, um, Kyle. It, it's, you know, we're certainly sitting around in this studio not going to get to the bottom of this. But um, Amico says that, to, told Galloway, that Robin Crittenden, who is right now the acting secretary of state, has not expressed interest in uh, investigating this further. Well, she'll soon, you know, uh, be out, out of that job. Uh, the question is whether Raffensperger will have any appetite for getting into a, a looking at this to see, if nothing else, whether it's a machine problem. Yeah, I think I'm really interested in how Raffensperger handles this. One of my frustrations with Brian Kemp when he was Secretary of State was that when these issues were raised, he was in a very defensive stance and often attacked the other side's lawyers for being liberal lawyers who were trying to steal elections or whatnot. And if Raffensperger takes the same kind of defensive approach, I think it raises the need for a voting rights commission in the state that would hear out challenges like these you know, regardless of whether they occur during election season or after, whether they would affect the outcome of an election or not, 
Um, I think we've gotten away a little bit in this conversation from recognizing that every individual in the state who's eligible to vote has a right to vote. And if somebody's right is violated, even if it doesn't violate, even if it doesn't sway the outcome of the election, it's important to protect that right for individuals. And I think a voting rights commission uh, could step in and do that in a way that a secretary of state, uh, at least recently from my view, hasn't been doing. All right. Uh, Buddy, you want to get the last word in this segment? we got to get to a break in a minute. I'll be brief. I think uh, Kyle's got a point, but what we need to continue to realize, and I've said this over and over again before, but the right to vote is a fundamental right. It's not something, a privilege that government gives you. It's an absolute right you have. And to take that right away from you, there must be a good and sufficient reason. All right, let's do this. Let's take another break. And when we come back, Buddy Darden, uh, I think you're going to be the star not the only voice in the next segment, but we got a couple issues that relate very specifically to you that we'll take up when Rewind continues. On the next Fresh Air, Rock Hudson's double life. He was a leading man, a Hollywood heartthrob in the 1950s and 60s, but he was gay and had to hide that from the public. He died in 1985 of AIDS-related causes, which was a turning point in public awareness of the epidemic. We'll talk with Hudson's biographer, Mark Griffin. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. I'm Noelle King. Over the past year, you listened as news broke and developed. You kept up with it all because being informed is important to you. And maybe as the stories changed, you did too. You heard new angles and voices. You understood. You grew. There will be more to learn in the new year, and we'll explore it all together. So please make a year-end gift now, because when we grow, you do too. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. Welcome back to Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Kyle Hayes of Peach Pot joins us in Washington. Uh, Buddy Darden, Julianne Thompson, and uh, Greg Bluestein are here in the studio. Buddy, a couple weeks ago on this show, we were talking about the 7th District Congressional race where, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Rob Woodall and Carolyn Bordeaux were still locked in a contest. The outcome was still in doubt after the election. And you made an interesting point. You reminded us that the United States House of Representatives is fully empowered to decide for itself what candidate from a congressional race it wants to seat. Well, the same is true also for the United States Senate, because ultimately that body itself is self-governing and determines uh, what members uh, will be seated. For the most part, however, there's never a problem. And fortunately, this situation has been settled up in the 7th District and this one has been certified and will be seated with no problem. But I think, however, yeah. however, in certain cases, the uh, House can retain under extraordinary circumstances the right not to seat someone. And that appears that happened to be to you at least once, I think, during your tenure. Right. You voted on that. We voted. We voted one time where there was an election contest in Indiana between uh, Congressman McIntosh and Congressman McIntyre. And uh, we turned out. Uh, because there were only two or three votes difference in the way some matters were counted and some irregularities, we seated we seated uh, the Democrat, who was McCloskey at that time, the mayor of uh, Bloomington, right. Bloomington, Indiana. I, I, so but, you went with a third but, candidate. Uh, it might have been, but I, ju- I just don't recall. Oh, huh. That was uh, Congressman Gadenson up in um, the state of Connecticut had a three-vote difference one time, and we seated him. But what I'm suggesting to you is that the ultimate authority lies with the body itself. You might recall the House of Representatives years ago uh, expelled Adam Clayton Powell for uh, violating its rules. However, he came back the next year and was reelected again. So uh, it's, it's a limited uh, power, but they can they can either seat you and they can also expel I you. I wanted to point it out, and I'm not suggesting we have a lengthy conversation about this, but our neighbor, North Carolina, right now continues to go through a disputed election in the 9th Congressional District. Uh, Republican Mark Harris has a 900-plus vote lead over the Democrat Dan McCready, and there have been real accusations up there of voting irregularly 
similarities. We don't have to go into them in detail. Uh, but Steny Hoyer, who will be the majority leader, uh, presumably in the new Democratic House, has already said uh, they may decide on their own to go ahead and seat Greg Bluestein, uh, McCready, the Democrats. So, you know, Darden keeps us on top of this stuff. Exactly. <laughs> That's a possibility. And then a whole new election is another. You, yeah. you have several prominent House Democrats calling for a new election as well. Yeah. Well, apparently that's some egregious conduct. I, I really don't know the truth or the merits of it, but at least I think there needs to be a thorough investigation and kind of see where we stand, maybe even hold it open for a while till we can determine what the situation is. Well, it's called ballot harvesting. Yeah. And ballot harvesting, in my opinion, is never a good thing, whether it's in North Carolina in this particular race or in seven congressional races in the state of California that were uh, tremendously affected by ballot harvesting, including that of Dana Rohrabacher and Young Kim, who was far ahead in the lead on election night and for the next couple of days until all of those ballots came in. So if Nancy Pelosi, who will be the presumed speaker of the House, is going to be looking at something like that in North Carolina, she also needs to look in her own backyard in the state of California where it happens on a regular basis. Okay. Um Let's move on, uh, because, buddy, you're going to be a part of this, too. Uh, we watched. Did, did you get to watch the Bush funeral uh, at National Cathedral, Julianne? And Kyle, were you able to pay, uh, pay attention to the funeral? Yes. OK, so we all did. Um, and I want to play just a little bit. It was uh, it was a beautiful service. And I want to play just a little bit of the eulogy that was given by presidential historian John Meacham, who, of course, became Bush's biographer uh, and who... Um, uh, was called upon one of the four people asked to give a eulogy. Let's just listen to a little of what Meacham had to say at National Cathedral. His life code, as he said, was tell the truth, don't blame people, be strong, do your best, try hard, forgive, stay the course. And that was and is the most American of creeds. Before Buddy Darden, we turn to you uh, because you served in Congress while George H.W. Uh, was president. Kyle, uh, we are presented with an interesting dilemma when a president of the United States or someone of equal sta of stature in his or her uh, own state, for instance, uh, dies. And that is, we want to remember the best of them, and we've been doing that on Political Rewind for the entire week. Uh, but, I mean, we also recognize that, I mean, let's face it, George H.W. Bush was far from perfect. Uh, people who fought uh, for uh, uh, HIV awareness and for the government to get more involved continue to feel uh, that he did not do enough uh, to help them. The whole Willie Horton matter in which his campaign manager or consultant Lee Atwater raised the specter of an African-American criminal who was going to uh, be turned loose uh, under a uh, Mike Dukakis president. I mean, the point is there were troubles. But in the long run, on a day like today, remembering the best of who he is seems to me to be fair. Am I right or wrong about that, Kyle? I think you're right about that. I don't think we have to close the book on President George H.W. Bush and never talk about him again after today. And and I think it's just a, a gesture of respect to, you know, look at someone's positive qualities and the way in which they impacted other people. I mean, George W. Bush uh, talked about how he was the best father a son or daughter could have ever hoped for. And, um, you know, I think that it's just a, a moment to... Uh, respect somebody who who we've lost. Buddy, with all that said, what was it like to serve in Congress with George H.W. Bush in the White House? Well, he was a good and decent man. Uh, I was there the entire time during his presidency and four years, of course, before that time when he was vice president. He was always open. He was always forthright. And I think he always, in my opinion, always told, told the truth. I remember one meeting, which is characterized in John Meacham's book about when he met with various groups from the Congress, including me, about whether or not he ought to seek presidential approval to go in, into uh, Kuwait. And, uh, out, out congressional s approval. Congressional yeah. approval, right, and, send, and send, out, send out the Iraqis by force and attack and, attack and uh, get things back in order in that part of the world. And uh, he was, had already decided to do it. 
but he was reluctant to do it, and uh, we all encouraged them to uh, bring the Congress in, let the system work, and see if uh, it would it would uh, come out in his favor. He did, by the way, a very close vote in the uh, Senate, a little bit larger than that in the House. I supported the uh, invasion, by the way. But in any event, uh, he always, in my opinion, tried, tried to do the right thing. And I'll say something that some people might disagree with me about, but I think uh, the esteem in which he was held and the American people feeling uh, bad about his uh, not being retained probably had something to do with George W. Bush uh, being elected because it was the esteem in which people held his father, I think, which contributed to the gravitas and the the um, respect that people ended up giving George W. Bush, who really had uh, much, much briefer record. Yeah, of course, Julianne, I don't know how Buddy Darden stood on this issue, but it was certainly his colleagues, the Democrats in the House, who really were the ones who forced George H.W. Bush to go back on his pledge, read my lips, no new taxes. Democrats said, if you raise taxes, we'll cut spending. You'd better do it. And then the Democrats didn't cut spending, but Bush was stuck with uh, this, you know, what may have cost him the election with this broken pledge. And it was a it was a tough time. Uh, I, I don't want to speak ill of... The former president. Um, I have the utmost of respect for him. Of course, I I disagreed with with that particular issue and and the the change he made. Um, I don't know if any of you saw Mike Lukovic's uh, cartoon where it showed George and Barbara together and it said "Read my lips" and they were outside of Heaven's Gate. I thought that that was a kind of a beautiful way to to end that statement. But um, I I just I just want to say that over the past week seeing. The country come together, seeing Republicans and Democrats come together, the American people, even the media, the way that they've covered this funeral and the respect uh, all across America that people have uh, for this man and the life that he lived. I think it reminds us of a bygone era. And I I, I just want to say he, he was the first person that I was old enough to vote for. That was my first presidential <laughs> election. And I am so honored. I, I never thought that later on in my life I would say I was so excited to vote for George H. Walker Bush <laughs> as my first as my first presidential Julianne, candidate. Julian and I am. Paul Ryan Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, that was the first presidential vote he cast. You know what's interesting about what Julianne just said, and we're really almost out of time, Greg. I spent a lot of time covering George H.W., as I did his son. And here's the thing. When Julianne says the media has been respectful this week, you know what? George H.W. Bush couldn't have been more respectful, more solicitous, kinder to reporters. It was an entirely different era. He talked with us with respect. We treated him with respect, even when we disagreed on issues. And those times are really fast fading as well. They are. There's, there was no war in the media. The, the most high-profile thing he did, I think, was get upset with Dan Rather, and yes. I think they, he ended that interview rather early. But other than that, um, it was a very sort of almost, uh, I don't know, a lot of what he did was patrician-like, and it was a it was a very conciliatory relationship, You know, a lot of give and take back and forth. All right. Well, it was fascinating as we come to the end of today's show to see uh, President Trump, uh, President Obama, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Jimmy Carter, all of them sitting there on the front row, mostly not talking to each other at the National Cathedral today. We're completely out of time for today's show. Kyle Hayes in Washington, Buddy Darden, Julianne Thompson, Greg Bluestein. Thanks so much for a really uh, interesting political rewind. By the way, John Meacham will be our special guest on Friday's show. We're going to rebroadcast the interview I did with him back when his biography of President Bush was released. There are some moving and touching stories you'll want to hear. We'll see you again on Friday. <laughs>